Well, good morning and welcome uh, to Christ Church. Special greetings to those joining us at uh, Crossroads and Highland Park and upstairs at the 01. Um, as someone said, well, I can tell it's Easter because Woodruff has a tie on again. So, okay, well, whatever the, uh, whatever the markers, good to have you here. There is a, uh, an old joke that's told about... Um, a guy who shows up at church twice a year, Christmas and Easter, and complains that uh, the pastor is in a rut. He only ever talks about the birth of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus, never anything else. Uh, you know, he needs some new material. So I'm sensitive to the idea of needing new material because we have been in the Gospel of Luke for a while. Somebody came up to me. Uh, a couple months ago and said, you know, back in 2013, we got transferred to California. We just got transferred back. We were thrilled to realize we didn't miss anything. (laughs) You're still in the same series, but no more. Today is it. We finish up uh, our ongoing study of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, as, As you heard, next week, we start this series for four weeks on relationships. So, single or married or single again or living together or married with kids or married without or you, uh, you, your grandparents, whatever the case. I have been spending a number of months sort of uh, talking with people, holding focus groups with uh, different groups, reading all the advice that's out there. I really think there's a lot of great counsel from God about how to get along and make relationships work better. So that's next week. Today, we are uh, finishing up Luke. We're in the 24th chapter, and I want to focus on a few verses that come after the resurrection. So it's later that morning. So the women have already appeared at the tomb. The stone's been rolled away. There's no body there. They they meet with an angel. Then they meet with Jesus. And uh, this picks up shortly after that. So I want to read out of Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 13. Now that same day, so it's just later on Sunday morning, now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked alongside them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Jesus asked, what are you guys talking about? One of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these days? And Jesus asked, what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So here's the deal. Like many others, they hadn't read the memo. They were looking for help to deal with their first century political problems with the Romans. They really underestimated who Jesus was and why he was there. Reading on, verse 21. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us, that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. Verse 25, he said to them, How foolish you are 
and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Didn't you know that Moses, that the Messiah was going to have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then, and here's the, here's the pay verse right here. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, he will uh, be persuaded by them to uh, stay with them in, in Emmaus. They stop. They've reached the place where they're going. Jesus acts like he's going to keep walking. They say, no, please stay with us. It's late. You know, you can't keep traveling. So he goes in, and during the meal, he then uh, proceeds to break the bread. And as soon as he goes into that, they're like, oh, my goodness, we know who this is. All right, and then he disappears. So they leave, and they race to Jerusalem to say, he's alive. We just talked with him. And then Jesus will appear to the disciples, and, and he has to persuade them that he's not a ghost. Because the claim here, again, is, is not uh, for a spiritual resurrection, but that Jesus came back to life, right? It wasn't a resuscitation. He'd been stone cold dead for three days. It was a resurrection. He comes back to life. He's not a ghost. He persuades the disciples he's not a ghost. They can touch him, right? And he's eating food. And then he says, verse 44, Look, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. I want to keep this as simple as I can today. I have five points. Number one, this book is about Jesus. So lots of people think this book is full of religious advice or inspirational stories. Not really. There's some inspirational stories. There's some religious advice. Be kind to each other. Take care of the poor. There's some religious advice in here. But that's not really what this is. Some people treat this book like it's magic. And that they can just read any verse out of context and claim it as a promise of God to them. No, that's not the way it works. This book is a story about Jesus. And the story is for you. It is the story of God's efforts to redeem you, to, to fix you, to help you, to reach out to you. So like any good story, and this is a great story, like any good story, um, there, there's three parts. There's the, there's the it's going okay part, there's the everything breaks part, and then there's the how's it going to get resolved part. So everything's going well for about a page and a half. <laughs> then there's the everything breaks part, uh, page two and a half or page three in this Bible, Genesis 3, uh, evil, death, destruction, pain, all kinds of things go wrong. And in the midst of all kinds of things going wrong and sort of the list of everything going wrong, God makes a promise and he says, I will fix this. I will send someone to make this right. And then you read the rest of the book to figure out how that's going to happen and if it's going to happen. Right? Is he really going to do it? So, uh, for the record, if the Bible were a movie and you missed the first three minutes, you couldn't understand what's happening. Because th there was a, it was good, it's busted, and now you're, you're, you've been given a very specific promise about how it's going to get fixed. And you're reading on to see if that's the case. Now, uh, here's the deal. Uh, there's other things we could say about this book. 
I mean, we could talk about the fact that it's divided into two parts, right? 39 books in the Old Testament that starts in the beginning and ends 400 years before Christ is born. 27 books in the New Testament that are basically about the life of Jesus, but the, the, the next 30 years after his resurrection. We could talk about the different kinds of styles of, of books here. When, 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 Jesus is, when, when Luke is describing what Jesus did, he said he explained to them Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Those are sort of the three big categories. There's history. There's the prophets, and then there's the writings, the, the, the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Moses was sort of history, uh, the Pentateuch, the Torah. So, so we could talk about those categories. We could talk uh, about big themes. We could talk about the fact that this book was written over 1,600 years by 40 different authors in three different languages on three continents. Look, more books have been written about this book than have been written about any other book. We could talk about this book for a long time. Here's what you need to know. This book is principally about Jesus. And is it about God's efforts to send someone to fix things? So Christianity does not make a religious claim. It makes a historical claim, and the claim is not that we can be good and earn God's favor. The claim is God had to show up and come down and and do all the work. We're broken. We cannot fix ourselves. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So there is an offer that gets made to us that we can embrace Christ, we can lean into Jesus, we can become a follower of the things that he taught and the claims that he made, and that's the case, then we enter into a relationship with God. This book tells that story. I'm emphasizing this because most people don't get it. Indeed, the guys on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus didn't get it. Jesus had to explain, don't you get, don't you see who Jesus was, who I am, how all these things fit together. When he goes to the disciples, he will spend 40 days after his resurrection, before his ascension into heaven, he spends 40 days teaching them, helping them see how all of these pieces go together. Now, we are not given the, the, the specifics of what Christ taught them during that time. There's no chapter, there's no book in the Bible that says during those 40 days, this is what Jesus pointed out. But quite honestly, <laughs> we don't need it. Because all you got to do is, is just go back and say, what might Jesus have said? It's pretty obvious. He would have started by saying, well, guys, first of all, you could have paid attention to all the different ways I claim to be God. Right? I use the names of God to refer to myself. I claim the titles of God. I accepted worship. I forgave sins. I claim to be eternal. I claim to create everything everywhere. Right? I, I, I demonstrated my power over sickness and death and evil and nature. I made a whole lot of claims that I was, in fact, one with the Father. I was God. Secondly, you could have looked at all the ways I checked the boxes. Because remember, there's, there's like 200 plus different, different things that the Messiah had to do. The different ways that the Messiah had to, to neatly fit into a pattern. So in Genesis 12, we're told that the Messiah was going to be a descendant of Abraham, a Jew. Jesus was. But not just that. In Genesis 49, we're told that he's going to be of the tribe of Judah. He was. He could have said, hey, remember Micah said that, that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem? 
I was born in Bethlehem. And this is a big deal. If, if somebody comes out and says, a future president of the United States is going to be born in California or Texas or Florida, you go, duh. Those are the states that have all the electoral votes, right? We know how this works. But when somebody had written 150 years ago and said, a future president of the United States in, in the 20th century is going to be born in Hope, Arkansas, or in Dixon, Illinois, would have said, whoa, hey, wow, 150 years ago they did, they did that. That's like one of 200 different things that happened. Psalm 22, written a, a thousand years before Christ was born, written hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented and became common practice in the Roman Empire. We have a description of Christ's death where he is, says his hands and feet are going to be pierced by a nail. He's going to be hanging on a tree. His side is going to be pierced, right? We have a description of how he died. We have a description saying that the Messiah is going to be buried in a rich man's tomb, which Jesus was. He could have said, look at all the things that I did to, to check off all the boxes to prove that I was the Messiah. He could have said, you know, you could have paid attention to some of the cryptic comments I made, like destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. Right? I was talking about myself. You could have looked at the Old Testament and said, wow, there's three offices that God seems to use to lead the Jews, prophet, priest, and king. He goes, I am the ultimate prophet. I am the high priest. I am the king of kings. All of that was about me. It was just setting up for me. The book has been about me. Right? I, when, I, when I write about this, when I talk about this, I will often try and emphasize some of the ways that all the blood in the Old Testament, all the sacrifices in the Old Testament, right, starting with the Passover, that you're going to take this innocent lamb. And remember, Jesus gets identified by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, you back up a couple thousand years, 1,400 years, and there you have God saying, so here's what I want you to do in order to be free, in order to, to have the angel of death pass over your house. I want you to take a one-year-old, perfect male animal, and, and I want you to, to sacrifice that animal. And I want you to, to, to spread the blood of that animal uh, over the doorpost. And then Jesus comes as that perfect person who will lay down their life, an innocent third party dying so that guilty people can go free. Right? So we've, we've got all these things that are happening that are pointing to Jesus. I've, again, I've talked about this. I've written about this. This past week, I had, uh, I had an experience that was really quite shocking to me. I'm, I'm reading through the book of Numbers. So Numbers is a book that uh, most of you probably haven't made it to. If you get industrious and say, I'm going to read the Bible, you go Genesis and Exodus, and that's so far so good. And then you hit Leviticus, and it's like, okay, full stop. So Numbers is the fourth book. It's right after Leviticus. But there's a passage there in Numbers 11 where Jesus is, uh, excuse me, where the, the Jews are out in the desert, and they're being led by Moses. So they just have got their freedom from the Egyptians. And they're slaves. And there's about a million of them. And they're out in the desert. So God is supernaturally keeping them alive. Because they got no food. They got no water. God has to intervene. And so God is helping to keep them alive. He's giving them manna every morning. It spreads on the ground like, like dew. And they can eat it. But here's the problem. They grow sick of the manna. 
And they go, we're having manna for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I hate manna. And then somebody says, remember how good we had it back in Egypt when we were slaves? Right? Remember we used to have meat back then? Remember how nice it was in Egypt? We should go back to Egypt. Now, for the record, they were beaten in Egypt. Their kids were murdered in Egypt. Egypt was horrible. And so Moses listens to this, and he goes off, and he, and he, he, uh, he goes out, and he, he says to God, gets alone with God, and he says, God, I'm not up for this. For the record, uh, these people make me sick. They are whiny, cry, snivelly little brats. I'm not going to deal with them. So I'm out. I'm not going to die for these people. They're crazy. Are you listening to them? Now, if you know the story, you know that God will supernaturally provide meat for them. A big wind blows all these quail. It blows them over the Mediterranean. They're exhausted. They land in a heap right there. They got all the food that they, they got all the meat that they want. But here's the deal, right? As I'm reading that about a, about a week ago, all of a sudden the light goes on and I go, oh yes, back in the book of Hebrews, a New Testament book, there's a statement, there's a line that says, Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Abraham. Jesus is better than Moses. How? Moses says, I'm not dying for these people. Right? I'm not, I'm not going to give my life for theirs. Right? But that's what Jesus does. Right? Everything is pointing to Jesus. The Old Testament is pointing ahead to Jesus. The New Testament is pointing back to Jesus, to his death and resurrection. This is a book about Jesus. And the claims that Jesus are making is that he was fully God for eternity past. He became fully man. He came down to live among us, to teach, to love, to serve, and ultimately to die in our place so that we could gain eternal life. That's the Christian faith. You actually have four other options, right? Uh, That's point two. Point number one is the Bible is about Jesus. Point number two is you have four other options. So over the last 20 to 25 years, travel and technology have shrunk our planet, right? The tall walls that separated countries and cultures have come down. It's not just that democracy and communism were fighting against each other. It's not just Boeing and Airbus that were fighting against each other, right? There were, there were ideas. There were religious truth claims, meta-narratives, worldviews, philosophies, whatever you want to call them. They have been competing. And today, as we're in the early part of the 21st century, there's basically five big ideas that have survived. And so you, you got a choice. Christianity is one of them. A second one is secularism. So technically, secularism says that there should not be any religious influence on the public square or on government. But what most people mean when they use the word secular is sort of the umbrella term for atheism, for naturalism, anti-supernaturalism. So so this is the claim, secularism is the claim, that what you see is all there is. There is There is no transcendent truth, there is no God, there is no eternal life, nothing. So you're free, as a secular person, to, to decide what kind of things matter and what kind of value life is going to have. Now, for the record, secularism tends to punch above its weight class. There's not that many truly secular people. Uh, Western Europe was secular, but it's, of course, sort of collapsing. You see secularism pretty prominently in faculty offices at colleges and universities, the editorial offices of the New York Times. I mean, there are places where you find secular ideas, but, but it's, it's not that big. It just has a big influence. So you can be secular. You can be a Christian, you can be secular. Number three, you can be a Buddhist. 
So the sort of the nomination out of the East, the one that has emerged globally is Buddhism. There are more Hindus today than there are Buddhists, but the caste system's a tough sell outside of India. Most people aren't signing up. And so Buddhism is, the, is a view put forward by a Nepalese monk 2,500 years ago who said there are four big truths that we need, to, we need to make peace with. Number one, life is suffering. Number two, suffering is because of desire. Number three, the way forward is to kill desire. Number four, there's an eightfold path that allows you to follow to sort of die to desire so you can be at peace. Okay? So Buddhism tends to get uh, adjusted, adapted to Western ideas, and, and, but, but Buddhism is out there. A third option, so Christianity, uh, secularism, Buddhism, a third option would be Islam. So Muslims, set aside all the political and military noise around uh, Islam, Muslims basically, it's, it's a classic religious claim that there is one God, and, and Muslims would say Muhammad is the prophet. And what you need to do is submit to the will of God and to the law of God, the Sharia. And so you, you pray five times a day, you fast during Ramadan, uh, you go on a spiritual pilgrimage. There's a number of things that you do so that when you die, you go to paradise. So, so as opposed to Christianity says God's here, he has to come down to us. Islam says we're here, we have to be better to move up to God. The fourth option that is out there, excuse me, the fifth option that is out there doesn't have a good name right now, but um, the, the name that occasionally gets associated with it is spiritual but not religious or Sheilaism because back in the 70s there was a, a Robert Bella, a famous sociologist who interviewed a woman named Sheila who, who articulated for the first time something very specific uh, it's become very common today, but it was very shocking to him when she first said this. And what she said was, look, uh, I believe what I want to believe. I've sort of made up my own faith, and I call it Sheilaism, because it's all the things that I like. And there's a lot of people today, because we live in a world of hyper-individualism, we live in a world of anti-institutionalism, where people say, you know, I'm sort of crafting my own faith. So I believe in God and I like Jesus. But I also like the idea of reincarnation. And I like some of the things of Buddha. And, and I, like, I, I like capitalism. And I like uh, the Chicago Cubs. And I like Oprah. And I like CrossFit. And, I li- and, and I'm going to put all these things together. And that's what I believe. And, and philosophers and theologians look on with just like this blank stare like, what are you talking about? You can't, just, you can't just cobble these things together. They don't even go together. Some of them, some of them absolutely repel each other. And, and, and you've got this idea that what you believe is going to change reality as opposed to discovering truth, as opposed to, as opposed to finding God. You're just going to make this up and assume that it's right? I was talking with a woman a while back. And she said, I am a Christian by religion. I am, by my philosophy, I am Eastern. And I believe that this, that this religious uh, Eastern man is going to help me save uh, several, several dozen reincarnation lives if I, will just, if I will meditate for three hours a day. And as we talked, I said, how do you put together the claims of Jesus and this guy? She says, look, it's what I want to believe. 
So don't try and talk me out of it. So let me say this. Um, Few have as blatant a, a nonsensical worldview as this woman did. But I find myself saying to folks, it's possible that all five of those views are wrong. Right? It's possible. You could logically say that Christianity, secularism, Islam, Buddhism, and, and Shilaism are all wrong. But they can't all be right. And it doesn't make any sense for you to just cobble something together. We are expected to pursue truth. God has written some of this on our heart, and we are expected to move into that, which leads to point number three. The Bible's about Jesus, number two. You have four other options, number three. The resurrection, which is what we celebrate on Easter, the resurrection is one of the claims to support the claims of Jesus. It's one of the pieces of evidence that is put forward. Christianity makes a historical claim, right? And and so it it, it doesn't ask us to believe on the basis of nothing. It it grounds things in times and places. So we're reading a passage that said, these people were walking on this day from Jerusalem to the road in Emmaus, right? It's a real place. It's not a long time ago in a faraway land. It's history. It makes historical claims. And, And part of the claim is that Jesus rose from the dead, which if you've been reading through the Gospel of Luke, is not that crazy of an idea. It's not like me rising from the dead or you rising from the dead. It's this person who has been stunningly different and perfect and amazing on every page. And he says he's going to conquer death, and he does. There are, from time to time, people who set out to disprove the Christian faith. The Bible tells you how to disprove the Christian faith. 1 Corinthians 15 tells you what you need to do to disprove it. Just disprove the resurrection. And so at some point, people sort of clue in on that, and they go after the resurrection. And, and uh, I, I actually rejoice when that happens, because a lot of those people end up persuading themselves, discovering for themselves that it's real. I had lunch a week ago with a guy when he was in high school, college, excuse me, he set out to disprove the Christian faith. And because of the way Jesus so perfectly fulfilled all of these prophecies that have been made hundreds and thousands of years in advance, and because of the things that Jesus taught, and because of the evidence for the resurrection, he became a Christ follower, wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict that has sold millions of copies. Not long ago in Chicago, 15 years ago, there was a Yale-trained attorney who was working as an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune. He was an atheist, as was his wife. She comes to faith in Jesus. And uh, he doesn't like this. He doesn't want a religious wife. And so he says, I'm going to use my Yale Law degree. I'm going to use my investigative reporting skills to disprove the Christian faith. And he sets out to do it. And in the process, becomes persuaded that Jesus did rise from the dead because he's God. And he's now a Christ follower. Which leads to point number four. So often on Easter, we will have somebody share a testimony. Somebody will say, I'm going to tell you my story. I used to not believe this happened, often something disruptive, and now I believe. So we often have people tell a story like that. Uh, We're going to do something different. We're going to have a number of people share how God has been changing their life. And we're going to set this up in the context of a song. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll go there. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for reaching down. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for doing everything that needs to be done for us to be made whole, for us to be forgiven. Lord Jesus, thank you for setting aside the glory and honor and privileges, the rights of, of glory as God in heaven to become one of us and to live among us and to, and to love and to serve and to teach and ultimately to die in our place. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for changing my life. I want to thank you for moving me from a person who was sort of struggling with unbridled ambition and a lot of anxiety to someone who could find contentment and peace. Thank you for making a difference in my life. I pray that you would open our eyes to see how you continue to do that today. Amen. So I said uh, that I was going to keep it simple. I had four point, or five points. I only gave you four. Number one, the Bible is about Jesus. Number two, you have four other options as I see it. Number three, the resurrection is part of the evidence to suggest that Jesus is who he claimed to be, God himself who died in the cross for you. Number four, there's other kinds of evidence. There's lots of evidence. But apparently some of you have brunch plans, so they didn't give me three hours to build the case, just 30 minutes. And so there's lots of other evidence, including changed lives. Point number five is you have to take a step, right? You have to act on this. You have to place your bets. At some point, you have to decide what you're going to believe, and you need to move down that path. And uh, it took me a while. Uh, it, it, was, it was years ago, but it took me a while. I had questions. I had doubts. I couldn't, I couldn't get there. It took a lot. But I was... I was aware that it was important, and so I, I put a lot of time into it to try and get answers. My frustration today is that lots of people seem to be completely preoccupied with life and Netflix, and they're not making a priority of figuring out what is ultimately real and matters. And so I want to challenge you. Maybe today is the day that you need to place your bets, and you need to decide, I'm going to be a Christ follower. So I'm going to close our time in prayer and uh, I'm going to give you a chance to pray. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm going to ask you to tell somebody before you leave. We've got resources for you. But uh, I'm going to give you a chance to pray a prayer like the one that I prayed to finally step over the line and become a Christ follower. Let me lead us now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, uh, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for doing everything for us that needs to be done. Lord Jesus, we thank you for accepting that assignment, for dying in our place, for bearing upon yourself the punishment for our sins. And we rejoice that you conquered death and that you rose again. I want to pray for those that are sort of undecided. Spirit of God, draw them to yourself. And if you are one of those people, I want to suggest that in the quiet of your own heart, you, you, you pray something like this. Heavenly Father, I want to be part of your family. I need to be forgiven of my sins. I want to be adopted as your child. Lord Jesus, I'm turning to you. I'm embracing you. I want you to be my master and Lord. I realize I'm never going to get another offer from anyone like you. No one's going to die for me. 
I want to be a Christ follower. Spirit of God, fill me, bless me, guide me, direct my life. Grant me forgiveness of sins and eternal life. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.